0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT to 9.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as all of the humans on Earth as well as our podcast audience. Dave? Yes.
1: Everybody everybody listens to this show. And you know what, Saren? It is the 700th episode ever of The Green Majority.
0: That's why I was doing a little bit of a... No, it's not Stephen Colbert, but uh, last week tonight. What's his face? Welcome, welcome, yeah. welcome. What's, well, what's yeah. his face?
1: That's what I was thinking. The 700th show. So, Saren, you've been doing this show for like a decade now. Is that correct?
0: Uh, a decade and a half. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm over 16 years now. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Look at you. Yeah. All right. And it's the 700th show. It is. And that's crazy. We were going to have the legendary Lauren Latour on live in studio, but something came up with her work. Right. Which is,
0: an, which is a good opportunity to remind everyone that we've done 700 shows as volunteers on top of our existent or non-existent actual jobs.
1: There it is. And uh, in lieu of that, also Stefan Hostetter could not make it again, but he has prepared a three-minute clip for us uh, that he recorded last night about it being the 700th show. I have no idea what he said in it. But uh, we're going to go to that in a second. We're also, of of course, going to cover uh, what's continuing to flare up across the country with the Wet'suwet'en solidarity protests and what could come of the talks uh, that are beginning to occur between the government and the chiefs, uh, as well as some of the uh, racist violence and authoritarianism that has been uh, occurring as a result of that, as a backlash against those protests and solidarity protests and the simple assertion of uh, indigenous rights. Um, and among other things, as well as Tim Nash, the sustainable economist, will be interviewing some people about green investment in the second half of the show.
0: Really important that he's here as the reigning champion, all-time uh, mm-hmm. title owner of most ever visits yeah. to the show.
1: He could have had a little conflict, little live uh, thing with Lauren, but uh, it's, too, it's not going to work out today. But yeah, we're going to go to that three-minute clip, so let's hear what Stefan has to say.
2: I've spent the last two weeks trying to work out what I'd say in this segment. I mean, 700 shows. And as I approach seven years on the show, I've only really been around for half of them. In this searching for words, I've been struck by two things. The first is gratitude to CIUT for being our home, to CERN for bringing me on the show in the first place, to the team we have now in Dave, Lauren, Nurhan, Megan, Chris, and to the innumerable volunteers and contributors who've made this show what it's been over the years, thank you so much. Most importantly, thank you to those of you who listen. I hope we do you proud. And the second is a question, one that I often grapple with. Has anything changed? Have we, not as a show, but as a movement, progressed? I mean, the world is so drastically dark right now, so unbelievably different from the world of episode 350, let alone episode 1. When the show began, atmospheric carbon was 381 parts per million. It's now 411 to put that in perspective, that 30-point difference is the same as the rise from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in 1800 to the beginning of the baby boom in 1950. I can't help but wonder, as our seas keep rising, are we really getting anywhere? And if I'm being perfectly honest, there are many days when my answer to that question is no. On those days, I try to remind myself I'm asking the wrong question. The question I should be asking is, are good people still fighting? To which the answer is always yes. More and more, all over the world, people are standing up in in the ways that they can, using the skills and resources that they have, and committing to rebuilding this world from the ashes our current system seems hell-bent to leave it in. Everywhere you look, people are building the infrastructure of the future that will catch the inevitable bust. An economic boom and a dust for the rest of us and those who come after. But you're out there. The truth-tellers, the gardeners, the caretakers, the lovers, the maintainers, the builders, the repairers, the growers, the fighters. You are out there and you inspire me every day. It's an honor to do this show and try our best to show you, show you to our small corner of the world. You have my never-ending thanks. May we never stop
0: growing. All right, that was Stefan. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, and now we will move on to our news coverage. So, it is looking increasingly possible that our federal and provincial governments may be prepared as a direct result of nationwide protests in support of the Wet'suwet'en to finally begin considering uh, respecting the authority of First Nations traditional governance systems rather than merely the colonially imposed band councils or simply whichever leaders seem the most convenient at any given time. Over the weekend of the 28th of February, Uh, Federal and provincial ministers sat down with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and matriarchs to discuss aboriginal rights and title, the treatment of indigenous peoples by Canadian governments more generally, and also the fate of TC Energy's coastal gas link liquid natural gas pipeline being constructed through Wet'suwet'en land. It is a tentative agreement that will be discussed amongst the Wet'suwet'en over the coming weeks, and it has not yet been made public, But it is a preliminary step in the talks that could, 23 years after the fact, see Canada actually begin to respect the historic 1997 Dalgamouk decision made by the Supreme Court of Canada that recognized that rights entitled to a big area of land in northern BC fell under the authority of Witsuitan and Gitsan hereditary chiefs. Part of the agreement, if accepted, seems to require that Wet'suwet'en title holders uh, will be brought to the table as soon as any project affecting them is conceived, and not merely after a whole bunch of preliminary machinations have already taken place. It is still British Columbia's position, however, that the coastal gas link pipeline will be built on its intended course, and it is still the office of the Wet'suwet'en's position that it will not. As Emma McIntosh writes for the National Observer, quote, The proposed agreement does not address coastal gas link directly, focusing instead on the deeper issue of Wet'suwet'en governance and the nation's right to its traditional territory. The draft agreement essentially sets ground rules for more discussions over what to do about the pipeline. Solidarity blockades of railways and roads... Occupations of corporate and government buildings and various other protests are therefore expected to continue indefinitely, since the actions began uh, in order to get RCMP and Coastal GasLink entirely off with land, and both these organizations are still operating there. Siam Hamilton reports that on Wednesday, March 4th, seven indigenous youth went to meet with Scott Fraser. Uh, they were invited to meet with Scott Fraser, the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation for B.C., to talk about the Whitsuitan struggle. But five of them were arrested after the discussions broke down, and the police would not tell anyone what uh, what they were being charged with, or they would not tell anyone else what they were being charged with. The Canadian press has recently brought to light that amongst fears of shortages of propane, chlorine, and other goods east of Ontario, the federal government negotiated for Canadian Pacific to transport the supplies on its lines instead of Canadian national railway lines that had been blockaded. There are currently no functional, uh, functional rail blockades except in Listegouche and Gunnawaki. New rail actions keep popping up, though for instance, in Kingston, Ontario, London, Ontario, and in Mi'kmaq Territory, and Indigenous youth have been occupying the steps of BC legislature for a week and a half now, with 100 UVic students walking out of class this week to join them overnight. And yesterday, they burned a court injunction on the lawn. Students from over 30 universities and dozens more high schools across the country participated in walkouts on Wednesday, the 4th of March, and also on Wednesday... Uh, 30,000 petitions were delivered to Export Development Canada to demand that no public money be given to the coastal gas link pipeline, which is an idea that has been floating around government. The Mohawks of Tyendinaga are re-upping their efforts after being brutally broken up by police on the 24th of February and are currently constructing a village near the site of their original blockade, arguing that it, quote, "...takes a village to stop a genocide." Mohawks from the Aquasasne Reserve have closed their roads to local traffic only, asserting their right to decide who passes through. And just yesterday, the federal liberals agreed to give them $240 million over a 132-year-old land claim. And a letter came this week from Guatemala, stating, quote, We support and stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en land defenders who are resisting the incursion of the coastal gas pipeline on their unceded territory. We, Zinca people and Zinca parliament in Guatemala, have been engaged in a similar struggle against the Escobal mine, in opposition to the BC-based company Pan American Silver, previously Tahoe Resources, in our territory. Through numerous municipal consultations, we've voiced our opposition to the project. For defending our territory, our people have been met with violence, including murder and the shooting of peaceful protesters, military occupation, threats, intimidation, as well as criminalization. We know full well the risks faced by indigenous land defenders when state forces and the legal system are mobilized in defense of resource extraction. We've seen this throughout Guatemala, and we're seeing this today in Wet'suwet'en territory.
0: So one of the things that I've been um, thinking about <clears throat> this week is specifically with regards to the Wusutin issue issues that the you know the amount of control and influence over the media narrative in Canada that these oil companies have is insidious and uh, pervasive, and so the you know regardless as to what we say here on this program, the simple fact is that an, a majority of Canadians um, are only hearing. <clears throat> The side of the oil company, not even the government, and we're still—they don't know it's the oil company. Uh, they're, they're, I've been retweeting a, a number of things about, like, here's a, an ad that's going around that claims to be from hereditary chiefs or something that's actually secretly—you know—we found we did an, you know, an, an investigation and it's actually all just from this marketing campaign that's run by an oil company. So here's, here's the thing: the issue right now, we're on the timeline that need that these things need to happen. We do not have an opportunity to completely take climate deniers and turn them into climate advocates. What we do have and where there is leverage to make an actual difference in our politics is to take the vast majority of Canadians who do not fall into the cluelessly and vehemently cannot be negotiated with climate denier group or the other thing, well, the majority of Canadians, I think, are well-meaning and have their heart in the right place and have just been lied to and just don't know what the facts are. So here's my action item for the day. Um, in your community, don't. this isn't sharing Facebook ads and all that stuff. It's one Facebook ad says this, another Facebook ad says that. Face, social media is not where this happens. In your community, you can phrase it however you like. Go around, ask people non-confrontationally. What do you think about this Wasuotin issue, right? Just get the, the, the thing. And if they have been subjected to and only to propaganda that's being routed to them from the oil company by way of some sleight of hand, um, then you have a real opportunity not to change their mind about all of climate change and not to speak for indigenous people. But it's very, very easy to connect the... Uh, claims of the government and the claims of these oil companies through their sleight of hand advertising with actual responses that have been issued by the indigenous leaders and people. So, What you as a non-indigenous ally can do is simply to go around and identify people who have been exposed to this propaganda and could be changed if they simply knew what was actually going on and connect them with the responses that are being issued by the indigenous leaders in the indigenous community. Um, this is how you can help amplify that message. You can connect it directly to people who might actually change their mind once they know. What's actually happening and you can do it in a way that's actually effective so that's that's what i that's what i want all my uh all my uh indigenous allies and climate allies to do today if you have a more direct route to do it great do that but if you're not sure what to do um yelling on twitter is not going to help go find some people who have been lied to and help connect them to the truth not from your mouth but from the indigenous communities themselves
1: and speaking of the uh media coverage I am going to skip now to uh, a couple paragraphs published on the Media Co-op by Lynn Gell regarding the way uh, this um, topic has been covered. So the Media Co-op itself is a coast-to-coast network of local media cooperatives dedicated to providing grassroots democratic coverage of their communities and of Canada. And Lynn Gell is the author of Claiming Anishinaabe, Decolonizing the Human Spirit. And she writes, quote, Within these news stories, traditionalists on their lands and First Nation band councils in their small reserve communities are being pitted against one another, where the real issue is what Canada is doing to Indigenous people, stealing our land and resources and polluting the land, water, and air that all people need, Canadians included. Canadians need to understand that there are indeed traditional sovereign Indigenous people who are correct when they stand up for their larger jurisdiction and rights beyond the reserve system and the Indian Act. Uh, Canadians also need to understand that First Nations chief and council communities are also doing their best within the confines of extreme duress when they make decisions for the community members' needs. It is completely incorrect for news reporters, news outlets, and national political television and radio programs to set up debates between these two groups of indigenous people. Both groups want their land back, both groups want an equal share of the resources from their land, and both groups want clean land, air, and water. Placing people under duress, giving them little option, and then placing their tough decisions at odds with one another, uh, uh, sorry, at odds with other people, is not a moral or legitimate process. And uh, speaking of non-moral or legitimate processes, I would I would now turn to my passage on racism and authoritarianism as popped up. Should I do this now?
0: Uh, yeah, we've well, yeah we've got a, we've got a couple of minutes. I, I don't think I need any closing comments. Why don't you Why don't you go ahead and wrap us out?
1: I will do this now. So anti-Indigenous racism uh, has been on the rise in Canada as these actions and blockades have gone on, with a bomb threat made against Wet'suwet'en and Tandanaga Mohawks arson threats to reserves, and threats of violence against a pregnant woman. A threat was sent to Ricochet Media reading, quote, "'Maybe we should send the army to your office.'" Proud Boys and other alt-right groups have been sniffing around the blockades and the occupation in BC, and Indigenous people have not even uh, Indigenous people not even involved in the protests have been attacked. For instance, the CBC reported that a woman <clears throat> in Vancouver was recently dropping off her 14-year-old son at school when a man yelled slurs, made a throat-cutting gesture, and smashed a plastic wagon over her car for several minutes and an indigenous man in Vancouver was sucker punched in the eye by a pro-pipeline dude who ran off right after hitting him. And Global News reports that an Alberta high school was on lockdown last week after racial slurs started circulating online. The police themselves have been doing some of the violence as well, with Mohawk defender Nick kobelsuk stepped on, punched, choked, and kicked in the face by the OPP officers who dismantled the Tandanaga blockade last week. Kobulsuk said, quote, I witnessed Canadian armed officers, pretty close to militarized officers, coming onto Mohawk territory and brutalized people. I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as doing my duty, upholding my responsibility, but that's the plain truth of it. They came and they brutalized people and treated people like animals. I leave my job and leave my family for days at a time to come here to uphold my responsibilities, to defend my people and defend our land. And now we have the B.C. liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson repeating a baseless conservative talking point about foreign money from the U.S. being used to fund the indigenous campaigns in the province when, in fact, some organizers are going into debt to keep these occupations going. It seems fairly clear that the money Wilkinson was talking about was not in fact sent to fund any of the current actions, and much of it was actually sent years ago, including to an environmental law initiative championed by the liberals themselves. Jesse Winter published an article in the National Observer this week in which B.C. legislature occupation organizer organizer Takaya Blaney argues that this kind of thing coming from Wilkinson encourages racist intimidation of the occupiers. Winter quotes Wilderness Committee uh, National Campaign Director Torrance Cost as saying, The fixation on where environmental groups are getting their money is rooted in two things. The first is this deeply held racism and the notion that indigenous leaders are incapable of leading a tactically brilliant, sustained movement, that they must be aided and abetted by shadowy foreign NGOs. The second is a lack of courage to face what's really the core of the issue. And that's confronting what recognizing Indigenous rights, Indigenous laws, and Indigenous governance really means for Canada.
0: Only companies are allowed to organize. Individuals have to stay separate. And you all say you you all get one vote. now stay in your corners and be quiet Please. if anyone if the three of you group up it's a gang uh, okay so um we're going to listen to isque uh which is, i believe how you pronounce the artist's name this is a, a canadian indigenous artist with whom i i'm ashamed to admit i'm not familiar because i'm assuming that lots of other people uh know who they are um this is uh this song where well, the first one we're going to listen to is done uh featuring tanya tagak and it's called the unforgiven
1: The green majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as
0: $1. All right. Uh Dave, I really like that artist. That was awesome. That was really cool. Was I'm going to You should play that
1: song again for our second music break.
0: Yeah. I'm going to There's other songs. we <laughs> will come back to it, but um
1: uh, so we will be linking that artist on our on our webpage so oh
0: absolutely um see so there's a little there's a little trick here I think I've told people before I'm not like a music header by any means and so before the show I just google oh I have to come up with something new and it, I just keep finding all this brilliant stuff uh, you should try it turns out who knew Canada has an absolute Mountain of talented indigenous uh, artists and musicians. Who knew? Um, So there we go. So Dave, uh, you've got a couple minutes on a segment here, and then we're going to be breaking through, partway through for Tim, so so it's all you for a few minutes here. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so uh, we're going to get into now how the government of Alberta has responded uh, to the cancellation of the tech mine, but also these protests more genuinely, uh, generally, and we can look at uh, it in connection to the way... uh, our governments seem to be increasing or at least leaning toward, leaning on authoritarian measures in response to stuff like this. Um, so the government of Alberta has uh, introduced a bill that would impose major fines starting at $1,000 a day for people disrupting what they call critical infrastructure and could land pipeline protesters in jail for six months. <clears throat> they are calling it the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, and as Sean Fine points out for The Globe and Mail, they could fine people up to $10,000 on the first day, and $25,000 for each subsequent day, and that any companies participating could be fined up to $200,000. Fine writes, quote, The approach echoes recently adopted laws in nine U.S. states, and utter consideration in eight others, which make it a felony to block or be present near pipelines and other major infrastructure. In Louisiana, for instance, the maximum jail term for such an offense is five years. About 16 people have been charged with felonies in that state for peaceful, nonviolent presence near infrastructure that would previously uh, have been treated as a misdemeanor trespass. In Canada, however, only the federal government can make criminal law. Fine also points out that the Alberta Justice Minister uh, wants the other provinces to do the same, and that a former judge suggested that it could lead to debtors' prisons. Melanie Woods tells us for the Huffington Post that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is attempting to cover, quote, as many bases as possible regarding current and possible future protests of infrastructure projects and that it's not clear if the bill is, quote, intended to apply to protests on government property at universities or other public institutions not directly named in the bill, and that the bill includes wording, which is open to the possibility of redefining critical infrastructure in the future. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms, however, gives Canadians the right to occupy public spaces like roads and government buildings, but it applies differently to private property like railways and pipelines. Kenny's bill seems to be blurring the distinction between public and private property. And for Ricochet Media, Brett McKay cites Sampson Cree activist Austin Migwa as arguing that many of the major projects being targeted by civil disobedience are already in violation of legally binding treaties. McKay points out that uh, rail block, the rail blockades and their ilk are already illegal under federal law. But this new Alberta bill would let cops arrest people without a warrant and then impose the huge fines and absurd sentencing we've already mentioned. Kenny was directly influenced in this matter by Tech Resources' recent cancellation of their own mine, which he said was evidence of protesters being allowed to scare off business, even though the company's cancellation letter includes reference to climate change and indigenous rights. So there you have it. That is Jason Kenny. The premier of Alberta introducing a bill to harshly penalize people to, for doing such such protests.
0: Yeah, I think I mean I don't I don't have a lot to say about that. I mean I, I could go on a Jason Kenny tear, but well I mean what's the point? Um, so I, but I think the real thing here is that uh, is to context. Um, to my mind, uh, the claims of people like Jason Kenny have continued to erode in substance and they have not been replaced with other substance and what i mean by that is that you used to get things over years past you used to get things that constructed more arguments that allowed more of a tone of come on now children the adults are talking (laughs) that you i my opinion has uh fallen away a lot of the words are similar um but there's not a construction of an argument and if it's more of a sort of desperate insistence um i think this is because they know they're losing the fight and this is like the shrill whinings of someone who's not doing well so i would take some as 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 dangerous and as the implications of things that he's talking about and would like to do are, I do think that the way he's talking about them indicates um, some degree of successful pressure. Um, I'm not really sure how much more about that I want to say. Mm -hmm.
1: And it is uh, thankfully possible that someone could get arrested um, based on this new bill if it passes, and then they could directly challenge it in court, and it could be found to be unconstitutional, so...
0: Well, and I mean, the other thing is that, like, think about what you're trying to do. Like, you're trying to intimidate people who, as far as what you're trying to intimidate, they don't have, like, they don't have anything to lose on the thing that you're threatening them. Like, these are people who genuinely think that their their future's at risk. So, like, what the... Do they give about a and fine? And also, also,
1: they're young people, and so the point being made is, like, they're not going to be able to pay these fines, so are we going to have debtors' prisons, right? Are you going to put these people well, in jail and that's because the thing, they can't pay the fines?
0: But it's also that, like, as soon as you do—like, like think about it this way. Like, that's—something th- like that is effective as a bluff. It's not effective as an actual strategy, because as soon as you start locking up climate protesters, what's going to happen? People are like, great, how much room you got? Mm-hmm. Like let's see, let's take this to its logical conclusion, and, and people are just gonna start lining up, be like, arrest me too, arrest me too. How much room you got? Arrest me too, arrest me too. How many Canadians are you gonna put in a freaking prison before this ends? Like it's it's it's, a, and I think he knows that's what the response would be, which is why it's a threat. It, but it's an empty threat. Yeah. It's an empty threat because, well, wow. regardless of. Regardless of the ideological differences, he knows where he is and he's in this fight, and he knows he's losing. That's why there's these all these desperate attempts. So there's no chance that th- they might do it. But I'm saying it's it is a bluff in in as so as in so as far as that he doesn't want to have to get that far. He's trying to scare people away from getting to the place to, to that place. It, it's far more of a threat as far as intimidation than it is a threat of like a strategy that he wants to pursue and thinks will be effective.
1: Yeah, and as far as indigenous people go, it's not an effective. Uh, deterrent because we're already seeing more protests popping up, right? You knock one down and, and three more
0: Well, I mean, let's, occur, let's so. just talk real talk for a minute, right? Like, indigenous people in this country have already been suffering and right now at least people are talking about them. Mm-hmm. How is this a loss for them? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, real talk. Like, what's the downside? Well, they could get fined a bunch, but
1: uh, we'll see what happens. So, uh, now we will just finish off with... Um, a link, the link, but the link. Some health professionals, professionals have made uh, with climate change here on this issue. So, a group of Canadian health professionals has published an open letter uh, in Ricochet in support of Witsuitin and against the Coastal GasLink pipeline. Reading in part, quote: The health risks from fracking are well known, including release of carcinogenic toxins such as benzene. Pregnant women in northern BC, northeastern BC, have serum benzene levels three times the normal level, and studies have shown this this has an association with increased childhood leukemia rates. U.S. studies have shown increases in congenital heart disease, chronic pulmonary pulmonary disorders, and small birth weight babies in populations living in proximity to fracking operations. And as we all know, every pipeline leaks. In addition, the CGL pipeline would feed the massive liquid natural gas project in Kitimat. The whole project is geared toward shipping huge volumes of liquid natural gas to Asian markets and increasing fossil fuel emissions worldwide at a time when the looming devastation of climate change is literally setting countries on fire. Australia is burning. Antarctic temperatures just past 20 degrees Celsius. The health risks presented by climate change should terrify everyone. And I, could have, I have a list of some of the new terrifying projections, but if we would like to go to music
0: to bring Tim in, we can do that now. Yeah, we, we can. We'll, why don't we sit on that for now? We'll, sit, we'll go back to that next <clears throat> week. I'm, I'm eager to hit that. So okay. we'll we'll do an early music break because we want to give Tim Nash and his uh, uh, roundtable uh, at an actual roundtable. Let's uh, do it. So we'll go right green in. Green investing. Is, this is uh, more Isque. Uh, uh, we're going to listen to breaking down when we come back. We're going to listen to the one and only Tim Nash, uh, the sustainable economist, uh, talking about uh, green investing and the green living show and a whole bunch of other wonderful things. Stay tuned. We will be right back. All right we are back here listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners as well as the podcast audience uh who we like only slightly better because then we know you exist when you subscribe to the podcast we see that little thing and it makes us super happy aside from that everyone is equal uh tim nash has been the title holder of the most ever visits to the green majority s- almost a decade running now with the the old title holder uh, title holder was bumped off very quickly um, but we haven't seen you in a while, so Tim, I'm, I'm
3: worried David Suzuki is going to be catching up to me. Well, I mean, you had these are big shoes. I
0: never <laughs> pretended not to play favorites. Uh, you will be kicked any time that David Suzuki says that he would like to talk to me. I, I was like, like had chills for an hour after that. What a sweet man. Um, <laughs> Anyhow, awesome. you're getting me distracted now. I'm just thinking about how sweet David Suzuki is. Yeah, so what we're right. going to do here, uh, I'm actually going to largely be quiet. I might interject, sure. um, but basically we're going to hand Tim the show because we've got uh, we 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 need to catch up on a wide range of issues. You're an expert on all of them, so just take it away.
3: Yeah, I'm just going to take over the show right now uh, because I have something very very exciting for listeners and for people who are interested in impact investments. Um, so I'm uh, I've partnered with the Green Living Show, which is the largest green consumer trade show, uh, I think in Canada, and uh, and it's hosted here in Toronto at the Metro, Convention, Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Uh, it's going to be next weekend. So for people listening on the radio, it starts a week today. It runs Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you're on the podcast, I believe that's March 13th until 15th. Um, and that really, this is like a full day, full on trade show, lots of different exhibitors there. And I've partnered with them to carve out this tiny little space that we are calling the Good Investment Market market. Uh, I've done this a couple times before. I've done it at the Center for Social Innovation, but now this is by far my largest stage with, I think there's like something like 25,000 people come through, which is a little bit ridiculous. Um, but we're gonna be hosting this experiential uh, uh, learning environment, this little, little activation uh, called the Good Investment Market where I have all different types of uh, impact investment organizations. These are organizations who have these offerings that pay you a financial return and then also that have a positive impact on the world. So this is really like a best of both worlds situation. Um, I've got three of them in the studio with me today, which is just so awesome that you're gonna get to hear from these organizations. Uh, and that really with the, the this good investment market at the Green Living Show, the idea is gonna be to come in, meet them in person, ask all kinds of questions, learn about impact investments and and uh, impact bonds, and then you know you are gonna have the opportunity to, to make a little investment of your own. I'm going to be handing out fake million dollar bills that people get to go around and decide who they want to invest with. So, you know, the context, I I just want to, I do want to let people know that obviously there's a lot happening in the stock market right now. We've got this coronavirus situation and extreme volatility. I looked at it this morning and, you know, right at markets open, markets were down another 3%. So I understand that people are very jumpy when it comes to their investments right now. And if you do have some cash on hand that you're looking to invest, And if you are worried about these jumpy markets, now is the best possible time for you to consider these types of impact bonds. And as you're going to learn today, these are uh, uh, bonds, these are debt instruments that are going to have this positive financial return. You're going to earn a little bit of money, and you're also going to make the world a better place. So uh, what I want to do is basically go around the circle. I've got three fabulous guests in here with me. Uh, uh, We've got Rudy from uh, Sketch. Uh, we've got Sally from the Fair Finance Fund, and I've got Chris from SolarShare, who are going to be able to come in here and and basically tell us what they're doing, how awesome it is, and really want to reinforce that you're going to get to meet these fine folks if you are able to come by the Green Living Show this weekend. So why don't I start on the left? We'll kind of go around the circle. Uh, Chris, you're with SolarShare. SolarShare has been around for quite a while. Uh, I remember seeing the advertisements on the TTC streetcars going past. So um, you know, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit, uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about SolarShare and the impact that you're having on the world.
4: Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm really excited for the Green Living Show. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to meet um, uh, lots of folks there. Um, yeah, so my name's Chris Kaners. I'm the General Manager of SolarShare. You're right, uh, SolarShare has been around since 2010. Uh, and, uh, and what we, we are, we're a not-for-profit renewable energy cooperative. We're the largest renewable energy cooperative in North America, as far as we know. And, uh, and what we do is we invest in solar projects in Ontario. They're across Ontario. Uh, we have about 14 and a half megawatts right now. Uh, and so what we do is we uh, we allow uh, residents of Ontario to in- make investments as low as $1,000 uh, into bonds uh, that are supported by the revenue from those projects. And so those projects are feed-in tariff projects. They have uh, 20-year contracts from the government of Ontario, and we sell the electricity that's generated at a fixed rate to the government of Ontario for w- via that contract. And so uh, what we are interested in is community ownership of renewable energy assets uh, throughout uh, uh, throughout the world, but uh, we're working on it in Ontario, of course, and uh, and it's something that we're really passionate about. You get a lot more um, local ownership, you get lots more local economic development, uh, you get returns that stay in the community, uh, you reduce greenhouse gases, um, and uh, you engage with the community on renewable energy, which is a serious issue uh, uh, to fight the uh, climate crisis. So uh, yeah, we're excited to be part of the Green Living Show and excited to have our conversation here today.
3: Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. And full disclosure, uh, I am a member of SolarShare, and I do own (laughs) a, a solar bond so um you know i'll just throw that out there to listeners that i might be a little bit biased but that i also happen to know way too much about your financials <laughs> so just just so that people are aware of that uh, great can can we uh, i'll pitch it over to, to sally from the fair finance fund
5: great uh, thanks tim it's uh it's great to be here with you all and get a chance to talk about what we've been doing um so the fair finance fund is a social finance fund that provides equitable and affordable loans um to the uh, social enterprises in the local food and farm sector. So everybody that we give loans to are um, social enterprises that can show that they have social purpose and um, provide environmental benefit. They are amazing. They are all um, focused on local production for local markets. Um, and we see this 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 particular kind of work as absolutely essential to respond to climate crisis, given... Um, some of the trends that have been in agriculture, um, some of the transformations that are happening in the food system that don't necessarily get access to conventional capital, this is absolutely essential. So we've raised, um, we've been around for about a year. Uh, We've raised uh, over 800,000 for the sector. We've invested in um, uh, seven fantastic enterprises. Um, So we've already placed over half a million, The impact of this is the impact of local food and farm enterprises is enormous in a local economy, um, usually multiplying two or three times. Meaning that the impact of of shopping at a farmers market, buying from these farms, um, is is those dollars circulate in in the economy, go to new local jobs um, and other infrastructure. So we see this as having a tremendous impact on building strong local economies in Ontario. We're raising money um, by issuing community bonds. We have two types. Uh, We have $50,000 bonds with 4% interest to May 31st, 2020. Those are 10-year terms. We offer $5,000 bonds with 2% interest for five-year terms. And this is open to um, all types of investors. Um, yeah, so we're 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 really excited. We look at our long term. This is going to be a um, continuous revolving loan fund. Our loans are all five year terms, six percent interest. We're going to do ten to fifteen loans uh, annually, and we estimate our impact on the Ontario's economy to be about eight hundred fifty thousand new revenue into the economy from the local food and farm sector annually. Um, we're getting—we estimate one job per twenty thousand in loans. We're actually getting one job per ten thousand. <laughs> so, we're really excited about our first year, and we'd love to have people join us on the project.
3: That's so awesome. So just, you know, if I can, my understanding of the model is really that that I'm loaning money. If I'm an investor, I'm going to give provide a loan to the Fair Finance Fund. Uh, I'm going to earn either 2% or 4%, depending on how much money I'm able to (laughs) allocate. And then from there, what you're going to do is take that money and then loan it out to social enterprises here in Ontario that are basically working on local food, I think is the major sort of the the underlying theme there.
5: Yeah. And it's the entire food system field to fork um, social enterprises across that um, that area and one thing that we've done which is somewhat unusual is that we have very lean operating expenses every penny invested goes to a loan client awesome um, and we're just operating on Um, the interest that we make on the loan.
3: That's so good. I know how hard it is for small businesses to be able to get access to capital. And I know for me, when I was starting my business, you know, and I would go and I would try to access debt and it would be like, you know, 8%, 9%, 12%. You know, how many times did I have to use my credit card? where It was 19 or 20%. You know, so really my understanding here, the impact is that this is going to provide access to debt, to loans for local food enterprises here in Ontario, build a more resilient, build a more sustainable food system, which is exactly... Exactly what we need. You got it. Awesome.
5: <laughs> I'm gonna send you out to present. Right. right? Yeah,
3: yeah. We can just <laughs> we can just clip that. You know, throw it up. We're good. So awesome. So uh, uh, now we'll move on to uh, Rudy from Sketch, and it was great. I you invited me in to yeah. see the building. I haven't I haven't seen the solar panels for SolarShare yet. I haven't been out to to the the farms yet with Fair Finance Fund, but I have been yeah. to the Sketch office. I was able to go there yesterday. It was so cool, and I'm so happy to have you here today and part of the uh, Green Living Show that, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Sketch and what you're doing with this community bond?
6: Absolutely. Some big shoes to fill over here after that. Um, but my name is Rudy Rudeman. I um, go by she, her uh, pronouns. And um, I have been with Sketch for the 21 out of the 24 years that we've actually been around. So we're a little bit different in that um, I think w- with my my co-presenters here today is that uh, Sketch is a not-for-profit charitable organization um, that works with young people, young, incredible uh uh, creative um, culture makers in the city and across the GTA, and really across the country, um, who are between 16 to 29, who identify as homeless, street involved, or marginalized. Um, we have about uh, just over a thousand individuals that come through our spaces today, and our space is being um, at Artscape Young Place. We have just under 9,000 square feet of studio, multidisciplinary studio space, and as you mentioned, uh, an admin hub which um, also provides programming space as well. So we've been there for about six years. So as a not-for-profit charitable organization, coming from the grassroots, we never imagined that we would ever own anything let alone um, the concept of purchasing our spaces but as I think um, we've been talking a lot about and I have a real passion for trying to what we have now coined as um, thanks to um, one of our champions uh sketching charity because we as a charitable organization have to find new ways to become more sustainable and this project is ab- actually helping us to leverage and to create ways to do that so what we're doing uh, it's very exciting it's going to be part of the Green Living Market, um, is we're doing a campaign called uh, Project Home. And we have an opportunity to purchase our spaces because it's in a condo structure, so we can purchase our units. And with that, when we looked at why we would do that, it was all about the fact that if we don't do that, in about five years, we won't be able to afford to be there anymore. And we have an incredible... um, uh, program that is, you know, impacting uh, not just in the in the Toronto area, but uh, because we have um, so many young people that are growing and developing leadership, they are now going out into communities. So it's impacting uh, across, you know, across the the country. Um, and so it's really important for us to try to figure out how to stay where we are and build from there. So we have developed a financial model that allows us to have a, a traditional mortgage Um, we were looking for the most um, cost effective way of doing this so it would be easiest if somebody came and just Bought it for us, obviously, but <laughs> um, Sketch is a small not-for-profit. The donor base ne- isn't necessarily there, so we have to raise some funds through a, a fundraising um, component as well. And then we um, got introduced to the concept of the bonds. Um, so we are raising 1.4 million in bonds. Ours is time-sensitive; it's from now until the end of June. So get them while you can because they're really exceptional.
3: Yeah, they're going to sell out <laughs> before the end of June. That's right. So you want to get in, hope, in there, so, yeah. 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 Bring, bring your checkbooks to the Green Living Show. That's
6: right. Yeah, and it's really great because we have a menu of bonds, so people can really uh, decide which bond is accessible to them. Anything from a thousand dollar bonds, which are really fantastic, especially those who are supportive and donors of your community, and and um, they can access it. So you can get a thousand dollar bond, three years at three percent, which is pretty great. And then we have two what we call more institutional bonds. So there are fifty thousand dollars for seven years and. For for five years, one at four and a half percent for seven years, and four percent for five years. And then we have a new one, um, which has never been done in Canada before. So I'm nah, um, <laughs> introducing the um, giving bond. So in consultation, we came up with the, um, uh, the plan to offer bonds that give back. So you would give me, Tim, $10,000, and you would give it to us for five years. Your rate of return would be the same. Five percent, uh, oh sorry, four percent on that five-year uh, bond, and then you would donate back the proceeds, and we would give you a charitable receipt. So hence Perfect. the giving bond.
3: And then, but then I, I'm loaning you the money, so I Correct. would get my ten thousand dollars back at the end of that five-year term.
6: Absolutely. Awesome. Unless, of course, you wanted to donate it yeah, at the then, end of. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm no. sure. You <laughs> would. No, absolutely. The, yes. the way that we have worked it is that we would give you give back the capital the same as we would Perfect. with the regular series of bonds.
3: Fantastic. Correct that's so exciting thank you so much and you know really it's just so cool to see obviously uh real estate in toronto right now is ridiculous uh that so many of us i think are are struggling with that and this notion of of affordability so you know really to hear that what an impact this is having on uh uh, the nonprofit sector and you know your organization is just so fantastic um, that really what we want to do is ensure your long-term financial sustainability and stability so if if you're able to own the building then obviously that's going to let you focus so much more on the programming and the exactly. work that you're doing helping these youth uh, rather than like having to worry about the Toronto real estate market
6: exactly and we would have to start some kind of campaign to move in 2 years yeah. anyway
3: i nobody wants you to move no, that community that space is move. so good yeah. <laughs> so no so we're we're going to we're going to raise that that bond uh, i will say you know just to people who are listening obviously when it comes to an investment portfolio you know you do want to make sure that you are properly diversified so, So these types of impact investments that we're talking about today, you're know, you hearing these minimum investment amounts, and it's always like, how much should I invest? Obviously, you don't want to invest all of your money in things like this. Really, this would be about carving out part of your portfolio. With my clients, typically, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 5% to 10% of your overall assets, but what you're doing here is carving that out for these uh, impact bonds that are going to have this very stable financial return. It's a bond, so it's a very consistent interest payment, while also having this wonderful uh, positive impact. Um, so, you know, really what I'm curious about is, you know, I'm thinking about the Screen Living Show, you know, trying to get my head in the game for what type of people are going to be coming the show. So, you know, I'm just curious, what type of investors are you attracting? You know, when, when people are coming to you and saying, hey, we want to support you, we want to do that, like, do you have a sort of archetype or, you know, stereotypical investor that's coming to you to be able to uh, uh,
4: actually purchase these bonds? Um, Chris, why don't we we'll, sure. we'll do the same mm-hmm. order? Absolutely. So um, it, it's uh, what I one thing it, it's really hard to find and Tim, you'd know this, it's really hard to find uh, green investments or impact investments when you're a retail investor like us. And that's the thing I love about all of this group here is that we're all in the retail, uh, space. So for $1,000, you can get in unless, you know, often if you're unless you're an accredited investor, it's very challenging. And I'll invest. just jump
3: in just because people probably don't know what an accredited sure. investor yes, is. Please, yes, but these me. are,
4: i.e. millionaires. That, right. You know, basically, if you're a millionaire, you have a
3: wide menu of options available for you. Uh, what we're doing here and and, and my goal with the, that Green Living Show is really to have uh, bonds that are available to retail investors, mm-hmm.
4: i.e. non-millionaires. That's right. Unless well, And if you come to the Green Living Show, you'll have a million dollars from Tim to invest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, it'll be no, I'm just kidding. Don't so, ask about the currency conversion. Yeah, 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 right yeah right. it's, it's pretty, it's poor. Uh, in any case, yeah. So, uh, you know, we, uh, of course, we, one of our interests is in getting more people involved with renewable energy in Ontario, more people investing in it. And that's why we're interested in retail investors actually, you know, ultimately making it as accessible as possible to, to everyone in Ontario uh, to invest. And so, uh, you know, we will take um, any investor who wants to um, uh, to invest in solar share. We think it's a great value proposition um, and I think in terms of our our membership, they're really interested in uh, solar energy. When we ask our members, what do you what are you investing for? What, what what do you like about Solar Share? They say solar energy. We're really interested in that. Uh, we're really interested in the way that you operate. We're not for profit cooperative. We like the social stuff. We also, um, and then the third thing is the return. So um, we find that uh, we we get a broad uh, range of people, but uh, but those are their interests
3: awesome thank you so much um, Sally when it comes to the
5: fair finance
3: fund what kind of people are you finding coming to the table
5: so it's um, I think similar probably to other people doing um, at the doing this at the table um, people come to us because they're interested in the social purpose they're uh, one of the primary um groups i think that's that's looking at our work are people who are very concerned about the climate crisis they're coming to us for um wanting to see um the environmental benefits that come from the loans that we give Um, i will i would mention so we are we're open to retail investors we want as many people as as possible we are finding that people are not necessarily the so-called high worth um um that they actually are coming from the point of view of being educated about the climate crisis and concerned about um, soil health and things, you know, things like that. Wanting planet-friendly agriculture, the the other target I'll mention, we we are working with um, institutions, and that's what the where the fifty thousand dollar bond comes in. And one of the things that's really important that changes this whole system of uh, so, of impact investing is that the, a lot of the foundations are starting to put a percentage of their money towards social finance, right. and that is so important for us to move all of all of this important work the renewable energy and arts and yep. and the food forward right so that's part of who we work with
3: Absolutely. If there are people listening who, you know, work for or sit on the investment committees of some of these major foundations, keep moving in this direction.
5: Or and universities that are divesting.
3: Absolutely. And this is, you know, we talk a lot about divestment uh, on this show. And we talk a lot about, you know, oil and gas and pipelines and things like this. And I think it's just as important to understand that reinvestment piece, that if you're going to be selling those shares of those things, then, you know, what are you going to buy? And, and these are going to be things that, you know, obviously are local, uh, obviously are going to have uh, an impact. Um, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Rudy, yes. what, I know you're new into your campaign. You're yes. what, like two weeks? Yes. So like, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, if you can tell me a little quickly because we are yes. running out of time. Yes. But what kind of people are buying bonds in Sketch?
6: amazing, incredible people. Um, but similarly with the foundations, um, they are very interested. In fact, I probably have more interest from foundations than I have bonds to sell. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, other than that, I think it's like the triple line uh, economy that we have people who, are, uh, who do have cash that they want to invest and they care about space, they care about housing, they care about young people having a place where they can become all that they're meant to be. So they have a care for the social side of it as well. Yeah. Um, and then there's a return for them. So totally. it's, a, it's a it's a real uh, give give and take, give and take. Um, and can I just say very quickly that um, also just to say that uh, what's unique about Sketch is that we have young people who are interested in buying bonds. Yeah. Who have been participating in the Sketch and then gone on and been able to, um, yeah, develop the work they're doing. That's so so awesome. it's a real broad spectrum. We have staff and board and everybody is investing. Um, so yeah, quite a broad spectrum.
3: Awesome. That's so exciting. And I will just clarify, uh, solar bonds are available only to residents of Ontario. That's right. Uh, but the other two investments are available nationally. Absolutely. So across okay. Canada, yeah. um, which is super exciting that anyone can uh, make these uh, uh, these these types of investments. I think that's my signal <laughs> that we are about running out of time. No, we're good. We've got a couple minutes. No, he wants me to wrap it up. Okay. So really want to remind everyone We've got the Green Living Show uh, uh, coming up uh, this coming weekend, March 13th to 15th, downtown Toronto, right at that Metro Toronto Convention Center. Um, I'm so excited to be able to host this little activation. Um, I think a lot of people have never heard of Impact Investments before. And this is going to be a great opportunity to come and not only learn about it and hear about it, but experience it, to understand what these organizations are doing, to understand how you can use your investment dollars to be able to have this financial return, but also generate that lovely positive impact that we're all trying so hard to do. So thank you so much to the Green Majority uh, for, for letting me take over this section. Thank you so much to my guests. Thank and you, uh, thank everyone you have a great yeah, Green thank Week.
0: You. You better believe I would have had stuff to add if we had time, Tim, but we don't. Thank you so much uh, to all our guests today as well. That was our 700th episode. I don't know if you folks caught that, but you're officially on our 700th episode. That's all the time we have for this week. Check it out. You'll get links to find Tim and all the guests today, links to all their websites on the show post today at greenmajority.ca. With that, have a Uh, good green week, folks. We'll see you all real soon.